It's a pleasure to introduce a colleague here at Cato, Louise Bennett. She is involved in our financial studies regulation program. She's uh, trained as a lawyer. She had uh, practiced law and focused a great deal on legal issues regarding financial services regulation. She's also had an academic background. Uh, she uh, lectured on macroeconomics and trade policy at the University of the Cape Town. She has quite an interesting career as an analyst, as a lawyer, as an uh, economist. And as you'll be able to tell from her accent, she was born and grew up in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> Hear me? Oh, there we go. These uh, lavaliers are a little bit, uh, a little bit tricky, but it's better than the mic because I know I turn back and forth. Um, thanks to Tom for the introduction. Uh, I think it's a testament to the great program that he puts together that he can get so many people here uh, in DC at the at the end of July. Although we have we haven't had such a hot uh, hot week, thankfully, but um, but I'm glad to see all of you here, and it's a great. A privilege to be able to uh, address uh, address uh, Cato University. Um, so, as as Tom mentioned, I was an attorney in private practice for the last five or six years. Uh, as some of my uh, colleagues remind me, being a lawyer is the one uh, profession that is inversely correlated with economic growth, and perhaps today we'll see a little bit why that might be. Uh, I spend a lot of my time on uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which was, of course, the big legislative initiative that came out of the 2008 financial crisis, even though some of us have noted it has relatively little to do with the crisis, but more on that in a minute. Um, it's also known as the Full Employment Act for Lawyers Part 2, because it is the one act, of, the, of course, part one was the, uh, the Banking Act of 1933 and the Securities Act of 1934. This is the follow-on from that. Um, however, the, the, the act is sort of tangentially related to what we're talking about today because one of its big claims is that it ends too big to fail. And too big to fail is our topic today, and it's the title of our discussion. Um, so I guess... We can see some Roman ruins there. The Rome obviously was one of the original uh, too-big-to-fail societies. So what does too-big-to-fail mean? Um, I looked up the term, and I was trying to see when it was first used, and I think it first made it into sort of the public discourse in 1984 in uh, the congressional hearings. It was used by Republican Congressman Scott McKinney, um, and that was, of course, the hearings to do with Continental Illinois. Continental Illinois was a, was a big uh, commercial bank that was bailed out by the FDIC. Um, and that was the first time that, that it was sort of used in public discourse. It had been used in some writings before, but it was the first time it was widely publicized. It came into connection with what happened in the events of 2008 through a book some of you may have read called Too Big to Fail. It was written by... Um, the deal book editor at the New York Times, Andrew Ross Sorkin. If you haven't read the book, it's a very entertaining book. It's more focused kind of on the personalities and it looks at one or two events in the financial crisis. The problem with the book having created the narrative for the financial crisis 
is that it only focuses on one or two events. So it doesn't give a complete picture of events. Um, and unfortunately, the narrative is, I think, and I hope to prove or to discuss today, the wrong narrative for what happened in 2008. Um, but anyway, more, more generally, so what does too big to fail mean? Okay, an individual institution is too big to fail when it cannot be liquidated in accordance with traditional bankruptcy laws without causing a collapse or crisis that impacts the entire economy. And it's that second point that's key. So two points, it's an individual firm, it cannot be liquidated, and its, it's um, failure will impact the entire economy. The most obvious examples are monopolies. This is usually not something we've seen, or we don't see much of in the United States, but for example, in foreign countries, a lot of state-owned or state-run monopolies, clearly too big to fail, providing electricity, cable, that sort of thing. Often they're, uh, they're, they're very inefficient providers, largely because they haven't been subject to the market forces that allow them to fail. But that's the most obvious example of a firm that's too big to fail. And then, of course, the other big example is sovereign states, um, that there's no sovereign government that can fail without impacting its economy. So those are two examples. Why is too big to fail a problem or, or the perception of it? You know, it could be a fact or, or a reality. The first reason is that it creates moral hazard. So firms, creditors, and counterparties will act differently if they think a firm is backstopped. It acts as a guarantee. Um, the second reason is that it encourages cronyism. So you have governments and regulators picking winners and losers in the, in the economic marketplace rather than the market. Uh, and that's a big problem. And the third reason is that it undermines the rule of law. So it subjects large firms to different and sometimes more onerous or less onerous rules. Um, but, but, it, but, it, but it violates the principle of treating everybody equally. But the question I have is too big to fail, at least in the, in the US financial sector, a fact, a policy, or an excuse. And there's two things I want to highlight here. The first is that too big to fail focuses on individual firms. Remember, it means that we shouldn't consider what happens in the broader market, we have to consider the individual firm. And the second thing is that the normal working assumption is that in a non-monopoly situation, so where there are more providers in the market, the assumption is if one firm fails, other firms in the market will pick up the business. So we're then assuming a too big to fail firm, that doesn't happen and there must be reasons why. So moving on, what is special about financial services? Many people argue that financial services are different from other industries, or financial services sector is different from other industries because it's one industry that is capable of initiating an economy-wide collapse. And there's two reasons for that. The one is that it, it connects various parts of the real economy. So for example, payment systems, you go into a store, you swipe your card, all of that is run by financial firms. Exchange of currency, underwriting activities, liquidity functions. If you're a small business and you have an overdraft with the bank, you need that frequently to meet payroll requirements and so on. Loan activities, and then of course, depository functions. So there's a lot of functions that banks perform that are systemic and you know, connect various parts of the real economy, which is why they are critical. The second reason is that financial services industry plays a key role in the creation of debt. So it expands and contracts the money supply. 
And it does that in two ways. Um, and the focus has traditionally been on the first way, which we'll discuss briefly, but what we learned in 2008 is that the second way is equally important. So the traditional way is traditionally used by commercial banks, and what that is, they take deposits, obviously, from ordinary customers, companies, individuals, and they lend them out to others at a rate of interest. This is known as fractional reserve banking because only a small portion of these deposits is retained as a capital base. Um, and, that, and that subjects banks to something called a maturity mismatch. You will sometimes hear this in discussions around financial reform. And it makes banks prone to runs because they're lending long-term to customers, but they have short-term deposits to fund that, which means that if their short-term deposits dry up, they can get themselves into a liquidity problem very quickly. Now, the non-traditional way, this is, this is more used by um, investment banks. And the um, investment banking arms of sort of global banks, and increasingly also by commercial banks, is the use of, of, of what we call non-traditional sources of funding. And these non-traditional sources of funding are things like commercial paper. Now, commercial paper is a kind of money market security. It's used as short-term liquidity. It usually takes the form of an unsecured promissory note with a fixed maturity date. It's usually overnight. So a company with good credit will sell its commercial paper usually to a money market fund, uh, there's no collateral involved, which means that as, a, you know, as the person accepting the commercial paper, you want to be certain that the company you're getting it from has a good credit rating, which is why any credit downgrade is usually a trigger for these banks to lose their commercial funding. It can be uh, very sensitive. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the second way is a repo or repurchase agreement. Some of you may know what this is or have heard of it. That's where the seller agrees to buy back securities at a predetermined price and time. Okay, this is, this is a, also a very large source of funding. So commercial paper, the commercial paper market in 2007 was approximately two and a half trillion dollars. So, and I think the, uh, the repo market was around three. The commercial paper market is now just over a trillion dollars in size. But it was a very significant source of funding at the time. Now, on should deposits, I think the last figure I could find, the FDIC has around $6 trillion in insured deposits. So you can see that these, this non-traditional form of funding is increasing as a, as a proportion of, of funding in the economy that banks use. So those are two, uh, two, uh, two ways of, of funding. Now, one more concept I want to go through before we get into the, into the discussion of too big to fail is this idea of systemic risk, because you hear this concept all the time in all discussions around uh, too big to fail banks. What is it? Well, it's very, very tricky to define, and no one ma has ma yet managed a precise definition. The problem is that Dodd-Frank uses this term as a key metric but it doesn't define it. It gives a very, very broad definition. And the, the, most of its, I'd say, most onerous provisions key off this concept of systemic risk. So you're subject to all these extremely onerous provisions if you're considered to be systemically risky, but there's no real way of defining it. 
Um, the financially, uh, Financial Stability Oversight Council, this is a new body that's created under Dodd-Frank. It's housed in the Treasury, so it's a political, or, uh, uh, you know, it's housed in a political branch of government. It's not a, in a, traditionally a regulator. It has not managed to define the concept, and that's the new systemic regulator. So that's a little bit of a problem. The language in the Act is that it's a firm or activity, the failure of which threatens the financial stability of the United States. Now, my view of this standard is that threat, a threat is very subjective. You know, one person's threat is another person's mundane activity. So it, you, you can't really have all of these, um, these provisions keying off this idea that is in highly subjective depending on who's, who's assessing the risk. So that's just uh, some background. So I have come up, though, with uh, what, uh, you know, from the academic literature, what I would consider to be the key three types of systemic risk. And these, these are contagion. So contagion is not interconnectedness. And I, I highlight this because people often confuse the two, including some academics. I wrote an article a while back, and I received um, a, a very angry letter from somebody who'd clearly confused the, uh, the, 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 the concept of contagion and interconnectedness. So what interconnectedness is, is you fail, and I have some exposure to you. Either you owe me money or I own your debt, but because I have such a big exposure to you, I fail as well. So that's interconnectedness. They, Two firms are clearly interconnected, interconnected. The failure of one results in the failure of another. That is not what contagion is. So what contagion is, is when a failure of one firm sparks a market-wide loss of confidence in other similar types of firms. And it's rare, but in two cases it can be a problem. And we saw a little bit of it in 2008. I'll get to there now. Um, Unless there's imperfect information, so people are not sure what's going on in the market, one firm collapses, they get nervous about the other types of firms, and they run from that activity in general. The other is where all the firms in the market have similar balance sheets, are engaged in similar activities, the market knows that, and so it runs. In 2008, I think there is an argument, some, some very well-known academics, Hal Scott at Harvard, who's a you know, relatively libertarian-leaning academic and some others, have said that contagion was a big problem. It was a problem in the investment banking sector. It wasn't a problem in the commercial banking sector. In the commercial banking sector, we saw a flight to quality. So the, more, the stronger institutions saw their deposits go up after 2008, but the weaker institutions obviously had got into trouble. That was not the case with the investment banks. In the investment banks, there was clearly a liquidity crisis across the board. And contagion may have, been, may have impacted that. The second type of systemic risk is what we call operational systemic risk. Uh, this goes back to the functions that banks perform. Um, and it means that obviously if a large bank fails, you lose, you know, you lose your payment systems, potentially you, you, you may have problems with, with your deposits, money stops flowing through the system. This can be managed using a well-designed bankruptcy regime. Unfortunately, as, as far as large banks go, we don't really have that currently, but it's, but it's an institutional problem that can be addressed. The third type of systemic risk is what we call a common shock. 
that is when everybody in the marketplace is exposed to the same type of asset or the same type of risk, and the asset implodes, the market falls away, or the asset becomes extremely risky. That's clearly the most directly linked to what happened in 2008. We know that the floor fell out of, of, of the mortgage market, particularly the subprime mortgage market. A lot of the banks that got into trouble had exposure to that market. So that was a, a big problem in 2008. So now we are going to go into the myths surrounding the 2008 crisis. So the first one is that the failure of a single too-big-to-fail institution, Lehman Brothers, and that I'm sure you all have heard of Lehman Brothers. It was a large investment bank in New York City that collapsed in 2008. But you still read in the newspaper today, people will say, well, you know, the fact that it wasn't bailed out, that's what caused the 2008 financial crisis. So let's look at that a little bit. Firstly, we've got, a, uh, we've got a quote here from Hal Scott, who's done all this work on interconnectedness and contagion, and he says only one fund actually had to break the buck on account, that was a money market fund, on account of its Lehman exposure, and even this exposure was quite small. That fund was the reserve primary fund. It is the only institution that failed directly because of Lehman Brothers' failure. Okay. Uh, now let's look at the timeline of failures in 2008. I'll just take you through. So over there, the 17th of February, Northern Rock failed. Northern Rock was a, I guess it was a building society in the United Kingdom, it was, which is kind of like a savings and loan organization. All it did was, well, most of what it did was mortgage-related. It uh, used to uh, lend, lend out, um, or it used to borrow pretty heavily on the international money markets, lend out mortgages, uh, then package the mortgages, securitize them, and sell them off. Unfortunately, when the mortgage market collapsed in late 2007, they had no one to buy their securitized mortgages. And because they'd been borrowing... Uh, you, in the beginning, we discussed the two different types of funding. They'd been using the non-traditional type. They'd been borrowing heavily and using their commercial paper and so on. And so they ran into a significant liquidity problem. That was a big deal because Northern Rock, um, there was a run on the bank. Uh, and that was the first time that there had been a run on the bank in the United Kingdom in 150 years. So, of course, that scared the markets. <laughs> um, but that was unrelated to Lehman Brothers. March uh, for, uh, to the, uh, the 14th of 2008, Bear Stearns was bought by JP Morgan um, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, something that, uh, or a transaction that was backed by uh, the US government. Um, JP Morgan was asked to buy Bear Stearns. They were pushed in, into the transaction because Bear Stearns was clearly going to fail on the Monday. Um, and so that was the first, the first instance of that. And I think that the Treasury at the time, it was run by Hank Paulson, uh, they were concerned that if Bear Stearns failed, a lot of other firms would, would follow and that would cause uh, market chaos. So they bailed them out. The 11th of July, IndyMac failed. IndyMac was a large California mortgage uh, provider. Interesting piece of trivia. Uh, Maxine Waters, who's a Democrat, who sits on the financial services, the House Financial Services Committee. Her husband was quite a senior executive at IndyMac. So I, I point that out because she's famous for having asked Ken Lewis in the, uh, in the hearings around the financial crisis, what, do you charge fees? 
um, but she was actually more involved in this than, than she has led on. Uh, so Indy Mac failed. This is, was a thrift, um, and it was uh, regulated by the OTS. It is, I think, to date, the largest loss to the uh, deposit insurance fund of any, of any bank failure. Uh, so it was quite significant, but it only did California mortgages, which obviously was quite unstable. Then on the 7th of September, Fannie and Freddie were officially nationalized. They were taken over by the US government uh, into a conservatorship. Um, they had been in trouble all through July, August. They had received some federal funds up to date, but that was the date they were officially nationalized. And then in orange, we've got there the 15th of September. That was the big day. That was the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed, AIG, and Merrill Lynch was bought by Bank of America. Now, AIG officially announced its rescue plan the next day, but it, but it all happened on, on, over that weekend. And then on the 16th of September, the Reserve Primary Fund, I mentioned, that collapsed. And then the 25th of September, WAMU, which is a commercial bank, um, was bought by JP Morgan, had also been taken into receivership by the FDIC. And then on the 29th of September, Wachovia, and that was bought by, um, by Wells Fargo, although there was a bit of a debate about whether it was going to be Wells Fargo or Citibank. Wells Fargo, which was in the much stronger financial position, ended up buying it without any recourse to, uh, to the Treasury funds. So that's the timeline of failures. Now, looking at that, I think it's pretty clear that we cannot blame the failure of Lehman Brothers on what's going on in this market, right? This is a widespread problem. There were clearly a lot of firms that were in trouble. Um, and, so, and so it's useful to, to kind of look through that. Um, the other thing I want to note about the Lehman bankruptcies, people criticize the Lehman bankruptcy for being you know, disorderly and chaotic and so on. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that it was unnecessarily value destructive for creditors because because the process was somewhat cumbersome. That said, the actual process was not nearly as, as disorderly as people, people suggest. Uh, derivatives, for example, closed out in a fairly orderly fashion. So this idea that Lehman created all this market chaos is, is really nonsense. We didn't, in fact, see market chaos until the following week when WAMU collapsed. And the FDIC decided to subvert their typical waterfall. So usually in a bankruptcy, you pay out creditors according to a waterfall. They subverted that so that they could protect unsecured depositors. That created a lot of chaos in the capital markets. So this idea, again, this idea that Lehman was the cause of this, I think, is, is a little bit simplistic. Let's go on to the next myth. Too big to fail firms are the only firms likely to be bailed out in a crisis. And then we look uh, at the Philadelphia Business Journal. They said the largest local financial institutions that took money from the TARP program, the TARP program was this big bailout program, have all repaid. But 500 of the 700 community banks that received TARP funds still owe money to Treasury. I think that that figure is now about 396. Um, so there's still a lot of, a lot of funds outstanding. So let's, oh, sorry, there we go. Let's look at that, uh, selected financial industry bailouts over the past century. And I just wanted to look at, when you look at, because there's also this idea, I think, that 2008 was the first time we'd seen this massive bailout. That's absolutely false if you look at the, at the historical context. So up there, we've got the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. That was 
a uh, Depression-era initiative. It was basically the forerunner of TARP. It's the same kind of concept. Difference was they didn't only make equity investments, they also made loans to financial institutions. TARP was, of course, an equity investment. They disbursed around $9 billion at the time. In current US dollars, that would be $153 billion. TARP, I think, at its height, um, had about $418 billion outstanding. Um, Continental Illinois, I mentioned earlier, that was 1984. The bank was $40 billion in asset size, $90 billion uh, in today's dollars. Um, Long-term capital management, that was an inter interesting one. It wasn't technically a government bailout, it was a creditor bailout, but it was organized by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So there was some government involvement, and I think it was sort of understood in behind the scenes that they would guarantee the loans of, of the other banks that participated. The banks actually ended up recouping all their money out of that. But that, was, that fund was $129 billion uh, in 1999, now $180 billion. Its losses were only $4.6 billion, so that was the whole that they only, I mean, we would all like $4.6 billion, but, um, but, but in terms of the, the size of the market, it wasn't significant. Bear Stearns, of course, that was now backstopped by the Treasury. Its size, $354 billion, that's $383 billion in today's dollars. And then the big one, Fannie Mae, which is one of the reasons I don't particularly like Andrew Ross Sorkin's book, is he totally ignores the role of Fannie and Freddie, which were obviously the two real critical um, uh, components of the 2008 financial crisis. That was pretty much, they were pretty much... Uh, monopolies in the market, so they, they basically had to be bailed out, $3.2 trillion. Okay, that's $3.5 trillion in today's, in today's uh, dollars. And then one I'd just like to, to remind people, because it still owes TARP funds, it's one of the, the banks we know about, uh, Ally Financial, it was formerly GMAC, it uh, provides pretty much financial assistance for General Motors, so basically um, underwriting car loans and some other functions, but nothing too systemic. They were about $184 billion, uh, $200 billion in today's, uh, today's dollars. They, I think, still owe the U.S. Treasury around $16 billion, and they have yet, which they have yet to pay. They've also failed every stress test they've done since 2008. So it doesn't look like they're, uh, they're getting any, any, any more financially sound. Um, and so let's now look at the size of some firms that were not bailed out during the 2008 crisis. We have Lehman Brothers, okay, that was the big one, uh, $693 billion in current uh, U.S. dollars. You've then got three banks, right, Wamu and Wachovia, 332 billion and 880 billion. Wachovia was the biggest bank failure in, um, in, in US history. And then we've got IndyMac, which uh, of course was a smaller one, but because it was sort of central in California, people focused on it. It also had, the, as I said, the largest loss to the uh, deposit insurance fund. Um, so looking at these graphs, it's very difficult to argue that size is the, is the main determinant of, of you know, when people are bailed out. Clearly, there are other factors involved, and this is also clearly a market-wide bailout. So let's get to the final myth, which is that Dodd-Frank fixes 
too big to fail. And Jack Lew recently on record is saying, as a matter of law, Dodd-Frank ended the notion that any firm is too big to fail. So let's look at what those key fixes are. So again, the key metric in the act for determining systemic riskiness is size. Bank holding companies that are in excess of $50 billion are automatically deemed systemic um, and automatically subject to heightened supervision. Uh, it's not clear to me, I mean, in terms of the market that 50 billion is even a particularly large number, but that's, that's, that's what gets you into the realm of sort of heightened supervision. Then we get on to the non-bank financial companies. The FSOC can designate non-bank financial companies such as insurance companies, money market funds, and hedge funds as, as systemic. Now, I have a big issue with this because if you look at insurance activities, this is clearly coming out of AIG, but there's nothing inherently systemic about insurance. Uh, traditional insurance activities are not systemic. This has been you know, said by the International Association of Insurance Advisors, and the reason for that is they don't have a maturity mismatch problem. They don't uh, borrow short and, and, and lend long, so they're not subject to the same runs and problems that, uh, that certain other financial institutions may be. The FSOC to date has focused only on size as well. It hasn't really looked at people's market position or the functions they perform. It's to date, it's only designated a few institutions, but they've all been, uh, designations have all been based on size. But then the, the more, I think the more important question is, how do you fix too big to fail by labeling an organization too big to fail? Because saying an organization is systemic, you're saying it could create market chaos, it could threaten the financial stability of the United States if it fails. Um, and I just don't think that's a helpful designation. First of all, no one knows what would threaten the financial stability of the United States until it happens. Um, so it's, it's, it seems to me very counterproductive to start labeling firms that may or may not be systemic as systemic. Um, the other issue about Dodd-Frank is it creates new systemic institutions. So one of the big uh, developments has been the creation of these derivative clearing houses um, where all derivatives now need to be cleared or, or at least standardized derivative products need to be cleared through these institutions. Now the market can only support one or two of these and that's a systemic institution. If that, if that derivatives clearinghouse fails, that's going to create chaos throughout the market. So that's, you know, that for me is a, is a, is a very problematic aspect of Dodd-Frank. And it, you know, it's, the idea was, oh, well, if you standardize these products, it will make them easier to monitor. I don't think that's necessarily the case. So then the last, uh, the last fix, and this is, I think, what Jack Lew was really going after when he said we've sort of fixed, uh, fixed too big to fail, is the creation of something called the orderly liquidation authority. Now, as I said to you earlier, operational systemic risk can be a big problem. I think that there probably was an argument to be made that we do need a new type of bankruptcy regime, particularly for large financial institutions. However, I don't think we need an, a, a new bankruptcy institution that's uh, you know, that's sort of overseen by the Treasury. So if a firm goes into the orderly liquidation authority, it's the uh, Treasury Secretary who makes the determination. Um, and obviously that has political consequences. First of all, I think it's unlikely any large or any Treasury Secretary would want the failure of a large organization on their watch. 
Um, and, or, or alternatively, they may be perceived as picking, again, picking winners or losers. The other problem is there's little judicial oversight once you're actually in the process. So I don't have a particular problem that the FDIC oversees it, but you need somebody making sure that they're adhering to waterfalls, that they're making, you know, and, and, and basically the act removes any, any bankruptcy court giving them any kind of oversight, any recourse to the courts. Uh, I think that's a, that's a big problem. Again, the other problem with it is that Dodd-Frank doesn't allow for corporate reorganization. Um, it also has a prohibition on using taxpayer funds to fund the, this um, wind down, although it does have its own fund that it can use for that. The problem with those two things is that that kind of subverts traditional, bankrupts, traditional bankruptcy laws. If you have a, a, you know, an organization that can be reorganized, why shouldn't it be? You know, it's better for creditors, it's better for the economy. Um, and, you know, and so, and so my concern is that because this is such an onerous type of organization or type of bankruptcy, people are not going to want to put firms into this. So they're going to get bailed out before they get to the stage of being in the orderly liquidation authority. And that is obviously counterproductive. Um, so let's look at uh, too big to fail post-crisis. Um, my view, as you've probably guessed, is that too big to fail has become a convenient catchphrase. I think it's leading to a lot of bad policies. One of the problems with it is that it focuses, again, attention on individual institutions instead of looking at the institutional factors that encouraged or incentivized them to get into the position they're in in the first place. And I think leading up to 2008, we, we know that the US housing policy, that the Federal Reserve's low interest rate policy, and that, um, you know, that, the, that the tax code, which encourages leverage over, you know, highly leveraged institutions, penalizes equity over debt, has led to a, you know, to a lot of the, the problems that we saw in 2008. The second thing is that it allows for two responses, and I think both of them are dangerous. The first is that either we try to limit the size of these institutions, but then that means they can't expand and break up in accordance with market factors. Um, and, you know, that's, that's obviously a key point, and, 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 and firms, any firms, regardless of, of, of the type of activity they're involved in, growing is an important part of, you know, expanding and success. And, you know, if firms are, have a, sort of an arbitrary cap on their size, they will engage in riskier activities because they need higher returns, but they have a size cap, so they do things that will, that will try and increase returns. I think it's, it's quite a dangerous uh, suggestion. The other option is to try and micromanage the operations of the organizations. And we see a little bit of this in Dodd-Frank, which is that, um, you know, there's this tension. On one hand, they say, well, we've ended too big to fail. But on the other hand, oh, but we also have to micromanage organizations in case they fail. That, that is a totally, there's a, there's a big tension in there. And I think, um, obviously, when you try and micromanage the operation of, of organizations, as we saw in 2008, you make failure and inefficiency more likely. So, um, so that's, a, that's a problem. Uh, on the final thing, is there a US institution that is too big to fail? Uh, the Federal Reserve has highlighted the following factors as being indicative of a too-big-to-fail firm. They said large size, high leverage, short-funded, and engaged in systemically risky activities. And as several people have pointed out, that would be the Federal Reserve. 
So, Stupeg, over $3.3 trillion in assets, considerably larger than the largest banks. Leverage, 60 to 1. It is short-funded, and its interest rates and money-printing actions create significant systemic risk. So, with that, um, I will open it up to questions. My name is George Harris, I'm from Los Angeles, and my question is, what's the fix? What's the fix? <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think there's two things that I would, I would suggest. I mean, the one point that I, if you look throughout the world, there's two things that causes massive banking financial crisis. The one is, it's always, almost always linked to real estate and asset bubbles. And the other is obviously a sovereign debt problem. That for the United States may be a problem down the road, but concentrating on the first, I think we need to stop encouraging people you know, to take on debt that they can't service. And, and, and the, key, the key debt is, is really housing debt. Um, for most people, I think owning a house is a consumption item, and it's only an investment if, you know, if house prices continue to increase. Um, and I think a lot of people falsely thought that they were they were investing when they when they bought um, in in 2008, and there was this sort of classic bubble. It was also obviously driven by the interest rates, um, and that's a, another big another big problem. And then the other thing is, I think that we need to have a little bit of a change in the tax code because I do think that there is an argument to be made that we need higher capital standards with banks. You know, they need more capital and less interference from regulators. Um, the problem is that you have a tax code now that heavily, heavily penalizes holding equity. Um, and debt is, debt is much cheaper. I think it's like six times cheaper. So obviously people are going to hold as little equity as they can. And I think, you know, that, that maybe there needs to be some, some revisions to that. But I'm not holding out any hope. Thank you. Yeah, but that requires more regulation and more government. What, in terms of, no, that just requires a change to the tax code. Oh, sorry. No, I, I mean, I, to, to be clear, I, I think that the that the that we do need a we do need a rollback on kind of the regulatory because a lot of what people invest in is is incentivized by the regulatory structure, and that's clearly a problem. So holding more capital, I think you know, if you left it to market forces and you didn't have some kind of guarantee, uh, people would naturally hold more capital. I don't think that's necessarily something you need to enforce in the market. Okay. While this was happening, uh, there was an enormous play in the business press around collateralized debt obligations, synthetic collateralized debt obligations, and credit default swaps. You mentioned derivatives briefly a few times, that, but at the time, nobody seemed to know what those things were, yeah. and that was constantly, constantly, constantly in the press. Was that overblown? Twenty twenty hindsight. No, that's that's actually a really excellent question. So. At its heart, the way I think about the 2008 financial crisis is at its heart, um, it's an origination problem. So if you didn't have the, so, so, so all of those products you mentioned, all those derivative products, derive their value from something else. Um, and that something obviously in this case was mortgages. Um, and if the mortgages had have been fine, the fact that you know you had all these these other products would have been okay. The problem is they were worthless because the underlying collateral was worthless. Um, I don't have a problem per se. I think derivatives 
you know, play a very important role. I'm not sure about some of these really esoteric products. The, the problem with those is that you can't value them. And it's very hard in a crisis type situation then to know what people are really holding on their balance sheet, which exacerbated the problem. So there definitely was a problem with the derivatives um, market. But I do think, you know, people learn from their mistakes. You know, if, if you get into trouble trading in those, you, you, won't, you won't do it again. Um, I'm not sure that the way that it was handled, and I'm not sure that having these derivatives clearing houses or anything is necessarily going to help. But yeah, to answer your question, it's a good one. I think it certainly exacerbated the problem. It wasn't the root of it. In 2008, uh, I was involved in the financial services industry. And when TARP came out and we heard the sky was falling and we needed TARP and uh, the systemic risk was upon us and this was all absolutely necessary, it kind of made sense to me and I deferred to their judgment. David Stockman's new book comes out with the BlackBerry Panic. He makes a very plausible case to my lights that there really wasn't a systemic risk. Sorry, yes, who did you say came out with the book? David Stockman's. Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. With it. Um, That it wasn't really systemic, that there would have been a lot of blood in the canyons of Wall Street with the uh, investment banks, certainly not really the commercial portions, the commercial banks, and I was wondering what your sense is. Uh, last year, I had a lot of discussions about this with people. And I was still giving the benefit of the doubt to Paulson and friends um, that they knew more than me. And Stockman makes a real good case. It's really wasn't systemic and that you could have had the, the Goldmans and so forth go away. Um, and with the um, insulation AIG had with its capital and the subsidiaries, the state, the state bank departments, of course, preventing the capital from being upstream to back the, the CDOs and so forth. Um, what's, what's your sense of Stockman's read that it was overplayed? I guess it's a long, short question. I mean, that's a diff you know, difficult question to answer because I think, you know, without sort of rewriting history, there could have been a number of, a number of ways it played out. I think that the question, you know, could you have let every investment bank go and that would not have caused a, a problem? I'm not sure that that is the case, partly because of because of what I put up in the slide there, that until 2008, we hadn't realized how big this alternative funding market was, and that was primarily channeled through the investment banks and created debt and underwriting and so on. So, um, but more generally, I think that he does make a good point. I think that it was overblown. Um, and it's very easy to sit in hindsight and say, you know, well, Paulson or, or Geithner or so on panicked. I mean, you know, watching what they were watching, you know, you can kind of understand why they may have panicked. But a lot of people also argue that, you know, bailing out Bear Stearns was the original sin. The market may have adjusted much quicker had they not created these sort of false expectations of future bailouts. And then leaving Lehman to go meant that the market was confused because you didn't know, you know, you couldn't adjust your expectations. I think there's a good argument for that as well. I think that their responses in 2008 were very haphazard, and that's never good for a market. You know, people, participants need to know. Um, but, it's, but I think the bigger question is how did you get there in the first place? And I think that's the question that no one, or some people are asking, but you know, is not getting a lot of a lot of attention in Washington, largely because Washington is largely to blame. So they don't like to focus on that. 
Go ahead. So after working at probably the worst Cronin Capital Bank for three years, Goldman Sachs, um, I, I heard a lot about the from the Investor Relations Department about the regulations were coming out um, as they would discuss with investors and they would they would reassure our investors that no, it's okay, actually the regulations are going to increase our competitive position in this market. And I and I and I thought about that and I researched it a little bit and I've heard several politicians make the same arguments that these regulations are actually designed to push competitors out of the market because these large banks like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, they have the ability to, to spend these high com compliance costs. Uh, do you, would you agree with that sentiment that they're, they're being designed to push competition out of the market and the good that they're achieving is actually very minimal compared to the, the damage they're doing in the competitive space? Well, I'd agree that the, that, the, that the regulations are extremely damaging. I mean, two things. I think that's right. it's correct to say that larger institutions are far better equipped to deal with an act like Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank is about 1,000 pages, 2,000 pages long, depending on the size of your print. It, um, it is, you know, incredibly complex. The regulations under it, there's 400 rulemaking requirements. <laughs> It's so complex, like, you know, for any smaller, you know, entity to try and absorb this is really difficult. Um, so they're sort of being regulated out of the marketplace, although technically Dodd-Frank was really only supposed to apply to the larger organizations. I am not convinced that Dodd-Frank is good for anybody. I don't think it's good for the larger organizations either. Um, and if you speak privately to some of the people there, uh, I'm sure they're selling that to investors because, you know, they'll try and they'll sell anything. But but basically, people are very concerned because what Dodd-Frank does is it encourages concentration in certain types of asset classes. Um, it means that banks are much more concerned about regulators, not about the market. So they're not doing what's good for the market or what makes sense financially. They're doing, you know, what makes sense for the Federal Reserve. And I think, you know, looking at the recent stress tests, we saw a good example of that, you know. Um, two, obviously, Ally failed, and they probably should have. But, you know, some of the, the, the most, the healthiest banks in the country had, had problems in the stress test because they weren't using the same model that, that, that the Federal Reserve was using. Um, and, you know, and that now, the, now these banks need to go and restructure their capital so they're the same as their competitors who are not doing as well. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me. So I think what the big problem is not really who it excludes from the market. It's the fact that it distorts the market in a very unhealthy way. It's a good question. And, and it does come up a lot. In um, I will say one more thing about, about the, the smaller banking lobby. Is it's a very powerful lobby here in DC. I didn't quite realize that. But obviously, every congressman has a community bank in his district. And they have been very hurt by uh, Dodd-Frank. And I think they thought that they actually supported them. The community banking lobby supported Dodd-Frank when it was passed, because they thought they were going to get a competitive advantage from it. And then they realized that all these rules are going to apply to them too, just not just more indirectly, um, and so they've they've had a they've had a rude awakening, I think. But I don't think it's good for anybody. I, I, in the discussion on too big to fail over the years, both in print and spoken, I never hear anyone talk about the investors who lost, the investors in those privately traded companies, other than the tax break they get on later years. What are your thoughts on that? Because 
Later on, one or two of these large organizations that were too big to fail reissued their stock and then were asked to, well, you can buy the stock at this new price. I'll pick General Motors as an example. So why is the hesitation not to talk about the investor factor and what they lost? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's actually, I mean, that's a very good point. I won't speak specifically to General Motors because um, I'm, I haven't focused too much on, on the, uh, the car industry. But, but I do think that there is this tendency, and, and even when we discuss bankruptcy and how, how would you bankrupt a large financial institution, there is this tendency to overlook who the investors are. And I think a lot of the investors, particularly at the banks, the bondholders and a lot of long-term shareholders, are some very powerful public organizations and also some, you know, mom and pop investors and so on. And I think people haven't fully come to terms with the impact that some of these have. So, you know, I do think the bailouts also did did help those, uh, you know, a lot of investors. Not all, depends on w which institution you invested in. Um, but but there, but there is there that that is an area that is that is largely ignored. Well, you realize for the investors, most of them got back from a tax standpoint less than fifteen percent of their investment. If so, if you look at no, no, but what organization are you talking about? Certainly not investors in in Citibank on, or I'll pick on AIG and Washington Mutual. Yes, okay, AIG was yeah. You were lucky from a tax standpoint to get yeah. tax credit. Of 15% on your investment. Yeah. Not that that's bad, but I just find it extraordinary because those investments are on the balance sheet of that company. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, I mean, AIG was was a, was a good example of of an organization, and this is where you really need these these rules to be articulated beforehand because you had this government takeover and then, you know, wiping out of shareholders and, and that litigation is obviously still going on. So thank you. Good point. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you know, I know your focus is the financial institution, but, you know, um, the uh, auto bailout was brought up, and that just, I think, sort of indicates, and you talked about it, how uh, it, it seems like it would just be a financial services thing, but pretty much any monopoly could theoretically be too big to fail, and also General Motors was sort of deemed too big to fail. Um, a, a bubble that's Well, I don't think anybody really believes General Motors was too big to fail, but it was too big to fail if you're a Democrat and it's a large constituency, so... <laughs> There's political implications, but yes. Um, but I was curious, there's a, there's a, a bubble that's, that's pretty uh, obvious and, and near and dear to, to my heart and all that, and the, the student debt bubble is, is a very interesting subject. I was wondering, I understand it's not uh, the financial services industry. Well, no, it, it is, so you, you're on topic, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I was really wondering how you could take lessons from Too Big to Fail and that whole experience and apply it to, you know, not to be cynical, but a possible failure in the student debt area? Well, I think what you don't do is the type of thing that Elizabeth Warren is now suggesting, which is basically to backstop, to basically do what, what Fannie and Freddie did, but with student loans. Um, I do think, you know, and I feel very sorry for a lot of students in this country, but I think the, pr the prices of, of tertiary education have just skyrocketed in a large part because there's sort of this upward pressure on, 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 on loans and um, I, I don't have a quick fix for it. I just think 
one of the big problems and one of the, the problems in Washington, and I hesitate to say this to a student because it probably goes, can, runs counter to your, to your interests, but you cannot micromanage, you know, for example, the interest rates that, that banks are charging and so on on that. You can't, you know, keep it artificially low because obviously it increases demand and you exacerbate the problem when the market, you know, when the market... Ex just very quickly, a proposal has been made to just forgive all of it. And I was wondering, that's almost bailout-like. Oh, that is a, yeah, that's clearly a bailout. I mean, that's a bailout of, of a certain constituency, yeah. Specifically on that proposal, what, you, what would your comment be? <laughs> well, uh, you know, you, you, you then can't expect the private market to ever want to, you know, participate in any of these things again. I, I, I uh, yeah, I, I don't think that that's a very good idea. Okay. I think, I, I, I do think that they should, you know, they should rather look at why we have, for example, uh, you know, substandard sort of. Uh, I mean, a lot. I think, I, and I think the guide AEI um, has has written on this extensively. It's sort of this 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 college education has taken over for I think a deficient high school education, and we need to start looking at at that because a lot of <laughs> a lot of college degrees are really largely worthless, you know, and, and, and are not training people for the jobs that they're doing. So outside of a certain set of, of skills, I don't, I, don't, I don't see much value in it. But that's the question, I think. Good question, thanks. So I'll have to ask my backup question because he stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you talked about inferior asset classes uh, with the Dodd-Frank Act. And uh, to me, that sounds like, picking winners and losers mm. like going forward because you're telling banks financial institutions that they can't or like you know if they if they give out loans in certain sectors of the economy then they'll get benefits or they'll be penalized um, and so actually my dad's a business owner and so he had a really difficult time obtaining a loan in real estate for example yeah. so could you talk about how that uh, I mean, what effect that has on the economy going forward? Um, yeah, that's a very good point. And I think one of, again, one of the real tensions in Dodd-Frank and in the debate that you hear um, is this idea, so, so obviously a part of Dodd-Frank, and I think this links to your question, is this development of something called the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which some of you may have heard of. and. You know, they have this kind of thing, well, we're going to make loans available to everybody who needs them, but then we're going to make it impossible for a bank to give out a loan. So really, they're taking a lot of the discretion away from banks. So, you know, and, and John Ellison, of course, who ran Skato, was a, was a banker for many, many years, and he started off in, at the loan desk. And he always says, and I think my father was also a banker, so he had the same experience, a lot of it is an art. You judge people coming in, based on their track record, their history, the likelihood of their success. Um, and they're taking a lot of that discretion away because, because if you give a loan to X person and not Y person, then you're discriminating against Y person. The other problem is a lot of the banks don't know what rules they're going to be subject to going forward. The CFPB has all this power. They're allowed to, um, they're allowed to determine what an abusive practice is post-fact. 
So they're kind of like, well, we'll, we'll tell you when we, when we see it. We, we'll know it when we see it. So banks are really scared. Um, and, and they're also scared about the capital standards and so on. So they're sitting on a lot of the capital and they're not lending it out. So you're right. You're hearing a lot of particularly small businesses and consumers and so on saying they just can't get loans now. And, and that's part of the problem. Oh, okay, good. Oh, okay, good. Thank, thanks, Tom. Okay, it's a, it's one of the one of the habits. If there's a mic in front of you, you sort of lean into it. But thank you. Um, okay, can everybody hear me? Has everybody? Okay, good. Thanks. Um, who was next to you? Um, back to Dodd Frank. Uh, I'll draw the analogy to the healthcare law and the individual mandate and the large implications we know that's going to have on the market. Does Dodd Frank have something like that that we know that's coming down the line? Um, the individual mandate. Uh, I think I just think that we're going to see definitely an increase, and we're already seeing it in the costs to consumers of bank products. Um, but then, conversely, these these kind of initiatives, like the student loan initiative and whatever, that are encouraging, I think, bubbles in certain sectors. Um, so I think that's that's going to be a problem. There isn't anything. Um, really like the individual mandating Dodd-Frank, although Dodd-Frank and Obamacare have quite a lot of similarities, and I think they're a departure from what's gone before. So what you, for example, see is these bodies that have enormous power to kind of regulate certain parts of the economy and no oversight from Congress. The other, the other similarities, both Obamacare and, um, and Dodd-Frank, both have an enormous amount of discretion built in for regulators. So they've, they're really not telling the regulators what to do. The regulators are kind of on a frolic of their own. So there are some similarities in the type of legislation, but there's nothing like the individual mandate in Dodd-Frank. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Deepak. I study MS Finance at UMass Boston. And I would agree with you that many of my friends, they are struggling to find a job because the education given in the schools is not, you know, useful in the real life because, for example, they teach us how to use calculators to solve you know, problems and use Excel sheets, and no one really uses those, those things in the, you know, in, the, in the financial industry anymore. But my question is about in 2005, or two years before the financial crisis, uh, Raghuram Rachan, who is an economist at Chicago Business School, he has given, uh, presented one paper, uh, has financial development made the world riskier? when they were honoring uh, Alan Greenspan and um, uh, so many Democrats uh, yeah. were also present. So he uh, raised some of the points that technical change, deregulation, and institutional changes, you know, allowing uh, companies to go for complicated financial transactions. And it is you know, interconnecting the world markets. And for example, plain vanilla transactions are allowing you know, financial institutions to get off the uh, different dates of their balance sheets. So do you think if they could have you know, listened to him and they could have you know, little, could able to fix the problem in 2005 and, and maybe delayed the whole crisis or little softened the whole crisis? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think that certainly, and somebody asked earlier about the, the CDOs, and certainly that there was this perception, I think, and when we talk about financial in innovation, I think that that's one of the key things that people are referring to. 
there was certainly a sense where people thought they could pass on risk, so risk basically evaporated. And I think risk is a little like gravity. I mean, banking is the management of risk. That is all it is, right? So it doesn't, you can't get rid of it. It's always there. And I think that 2008 was a wake-up call. People realized that there's no financial product in the world that can get rid of risk. Um, I actually think, you know, first of all, I don't think that there was deregulation. There's this sort of myth that we had these totally unregulated markets. I mean, there was a lot of regulation going on. And, and I think Bush, I can't remember the exact number, but added hundreds of new regulations on banks. So this idea that we had this period, I think, is false. But the other thing is that global capital markets did develop enormously in the 80s and 90s, and uh, some 1980s and 90s, and that's been hugely beneficial. You know, it's noticed less in the United States, but in the developing world, that was hugely, hugely uh, beneficial. And those gains haven't been wiped out even by the 2008 financial crisis. So it's good and it's bad. I mean, if you're seeing it as a way of avoiding reality of, of gravity, which in, in financial services is risk, then obviously it's not good. Um, thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Chris Lancaster, and I'm studying at Case Western Reserve. Um, my question has probably been touched on by a lot of the previous questions, but I'm specifically concerned about perverse incentives in um, Dodd-Frank. Uh, I know that, as try as I might, I'm no economist. I can't understand, make head nor tail of most of that legislation. I think a lot of other people can't. And I nor can the people who wrote it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All the ones that, are, that are, are meant to be putting it into practice. Sorry, anyway, I interrupted. And I think a large part of what I saw that led to a lot of the financial crisis is a lot of actually um, the regulators in both Clinton and Bush really wanted to push home ownership yeah. and subprime. And I think actually it caused perverse incentives for a lot of banks to say, well, we're going to sell a lot more riskier mortgages and actually we're just going to clean them up and sell them, <coughs> get great credit ratings on them, pretty much lie to everybody we possibly can to push these perverse incentives that the government has actually handed down on us. So I guess my question would be, with this extra regulation that's coming with Dodd-Frank and more regulators that have a lot more ability to be freewheeling um, in the government's handling of banks, do you think that could actually cause the banks to lie to the government and um, cause a lot of unintended perverse incentives in how they handle their banking in the future? Um, I, you know, your, your question about perverse incentives, I think, is, and, and I was trying to, I, I don't know if I made the point articulately, but that was kind of my, my issue about the tax code. The other big perverse incentive, which I think people overlook, which, which played into the subprime mortgage crisis, was the perverse incentives created by the Basel regime, okay? So what Basel did was it said you had to hold capital, which is fine, but then they had risk weightings for the capital. So there was this incentive to hold, because you obviously want to make as much money as you can out of it, this incentive to hold these very, very risky assets that were triple A rated, which happened to be some subprime mortgages, which is why so many banks were holding them as investments. They weren't even trading in them. They were holding them as capital on their balance sheet. So yes, there is a perverse incentive created. And, um, and it's difficult to know, you know, what kind of asset. My, my argument is let, let people do what they want because the chances of them all making the same mistake are slim unless there's an institutional factor kind of encouraging it. But, yeah, there, was a very, there were very perverse incentives. And one of, the, one of my major issues with Washington is there's no acknowledgement. Yes, there was a lot of fault on the part of Wall Street um, and, and banks across the country, but there's no acknowledgement of the part that was played in the, in the institutional structure. Atri Callis, that's from Rhode Island. 
In the book Atlas Shrugged, there is a character called Wesley Moots. Pure evil, rotten to the core. The real life equivalent is Barney Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Barney Frank in charge of the banking industry is like putting the mafia in charge of the police department. <laughs> Well, the problem, you see, the problem with Barney is that unlike a lot of people in Congress, and I would go so far as to say most people in Congress, he's actually intelligent, and so he knew what he knows what he's doing, um, and he was well aware. I think I think one of the big big criticisms. I mean, it's ironic that obviously the response to the financial crisis is named after one of the people who refused to do anything about the GSEs, um, but but I'll let my colleague Mark uh, Mark Labria talk more on that because he was actually there in the in the negotiations. So. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Mario Leone from Ohio, and my question may be a little bit unrelated to this exact scenario, but in, I know in Cyprus this past year, like they had a financial crisis, and they did, yeah. I guess, what was called a bail-in. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering if you could maybe describe that, and maybe if it has any policy implication or connection to any potential crisis that were to happen here, or if that were to maybe be an idea that would maybe foolishly be suggested here. Okay. Well, actually, I'm very glad you asked that question because I have a policy paper coming out on, in the fall on this exact topic, so I can talk about it for, <laughs> for a long time, but I'm, I don't want to bore the audience. Um, no, it's a very good question. So what bail-in is, um, and this goes a little bit a question to, to treatment of investors, what bail-in is, is instead of you know, recourse to taxpayer funds, you have shareholders, you have bondholders, and so on. Um, and when an institution gets into trouble, the shareholders are wiped out, and then usually the bondholders, um, other kinds of creditors, become the new owners of the firm, and they, and they basically recapitalize the firm that way. That model didn't work very well in Cyprus, and it didn't work very well in Cyprus for two reasons. The first is that Cyprus, um, firstly, they didn't tell anyone that this was what they were going to do. So, so the key to bail-in is it can work quite well as long as investors know in advance or shareholders and bondholders know that this is, this is going to be the issue because people need to be able to model their risk. They need to be able to price their risk. So that was the first problem. And obviously, Europe you know, is kind of a free-for-all. One country, they do one thing. Another country, they do something else. So, so that, was, that, that really frightened people. The other reason and more specific reason it didn't work in, in Cyprus was because Cypriot banks don't really have any bondholders, right? The structure of the bank is that you have depositors, uninsured and insured depositors, um, and, then, and then firstly they decided to wipe out the depositors, then they backtracked a little bit on that, so it was just a chaotic situation. But bail-in as a concept I think is I think is the only real way that you can you can manage a large bank bankruptcy in an orderly way without recourse to taxpayer funds. So I think that will be the way um, the way that it's done in the future if they don't decide to bail out organisations again. Thank you. Good question. Hi. Uh, a couple of things. <laughs> uh, in his book Architects of Ruin, Peter Schweitzer makes that um, Citibank or Citicorp has been bailed out five times. That sound right to you? Um, so that's a good question. I mean, I think it depends on how you define a bailout. They've certainly, um, so for example, long-term capital management, some of those other uh, selected bailouts, I, I, I didn't uh, list all of them. Um, some of those things, and then obviously the peso crisis in, in, and the US government response to that, a lot of people argued benefited Citibank disproportionately to other institutions because they had a lot of exposure. Whether they would have failed, 
I don't know. But they certainly, they, they certainly have run into serious financial difficulties at several periods over, over their existence. Well, it begs the question why they're allowed repeated bites at the apple. Um, <laughs> well, that's the problem with, 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 it, with picking winners and losers, yeah. right? Is, especially if you do it when an organization is smaller, then they get bigger, then it happens again. I mean, I think there is some argument that, that there's certain institutional cultures and perhaps the one, the one problem with letting Citibank go, City go in uh, 2008, I, think, I don't think it would have created as much of a systemic crisis as people think if it was managed in an orderly way, but it would have meant that the remaining banks got bigger because somebody in the marketplace has to take, and that's fine. I mean, I don't have a problem with that, but I think given the, the current discourse, some people would have a problem with that. The other thing I wanted to mention, I'm, I, I appraise residential real estate. I have my own business, um, and prior to the meltdown, prior to Dodd-Frank, um, I was able to write 10 or 11 reports a week. Today, with all the extra commentary and analysis that we're required to do, which incidentally does not enhance the credibility of the opinion of value that I produce. No, no. It takes an extra hour, hour and a half <laughs> to write each report. I can generate maybe six or seven reports a week. The fees did not go up to offset that. Yeah. So I'm working harder, longer to generate less revenue for my family. And I'm, I'm a sole provider. So just I throw that out as people think, well, it's hurting the banks. Well, folks, I'm at the bottom of the food yeah, chain. Yeah. And uh, it's... Uh, it's hurting little guys too. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's very much, and, and this is this, and I think like anything, it's always the people at the at the lower end of the spectrum that that bear the biggest burden, you know, of, of these. And and for some reason, and and, and I think of Elizabeth Warren because she's probably the worst culprit, but there's a lot of culprits. Is is Washington just doesn't see costs involved in regulation? They think regulation is an entirely costless exercise, and people can just do it. Well, it's costly. I mean, it's costly for the large organizations. It can be life-threatening for, for smaller organizations. So, yeah. Hello, Thomas, a PhD and law student from University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. They, by the way, are competitors of Cape Town, so I'm not really sure if I can take his question, <laughs> but I'll let you speak. Well, I hope my question isn't subversive, <laughs> but uh, um, I, I think it deals actually, it, it follows from the previous question, so I'll, I'll try... I'll, I, th I think we can try here some continuity. Um, the standard libertarian answer for, irrespective of the question, seems to be throw all the regulations away. And I think that a legitimate perspective, but a rather narrow perspective, in the sense that it doesn't take into account whether it's good or bad regulation. It's a kind of a dogma that all regulations seem to be bad. Uh, as a trained lawyer that, or lawyers that we are, um, and people who have who come into contact contact with these institutions every day in our lives, uh, I would like to, irrespective of what, of what I may feel about regulation of the financial service industry, I would like to ask you if you think that uh, what is the space, if any, for financial services industry regulation in the context of a free market economy? Yeah, no, that's a very good question, and it's a difficult one. You know, banking in particular, because of this mis maturity mismatch problem, and um, it, is, it poses a little bit of a problem for libertarians. And libertarians often have vastly different views on banking. Some libertarians don't even agree with fact fractional reserve banking, so that's kind of the extreme view. But, but I, I think that the real question is we need to ask. You touched on is 
good regulations versus bad regulations. Does anybody really think that the current regulatory structure in the United States for banks pre-2008, post-2008 is really working? Um, you know, it's, it, 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 it clearly wasn't. And, and my real concern about this is, is Dodd-Frank just radically increases the power of regulators on this assumption that regulators can save us from the next crisis, but they've never saved us from any crisis. So it's, it's sort of this idea that, that every, every time you have a failure of regulation, you get more regulation, just doesn't seem to me to be a, a coherent answer. Now, you know, perhaps people, perhaps banks need to be less leveraged, perhaps they need to hold high capital, but we need to have an honest discussion about what the trade-offs of that, of those, of those, um, requirements are. And, you know, this idea that you can have this costless regulation, I think, is, is a fallacy. Milton Friedman said, like, regulation always has unintended consequences. And I think that's, that's you know, something that's just kind of ignored. Thank you. I think we're, that's perfect. We're nearly out of time. So one last question. <laughs> Hello, uh, my name is Gabriela Bachille. I'm majoring in economics at Central University of Venezuela. So um, this question came to me while I was uh, listening to the other questions. So I really don't know uh, very much about uh, Dutch-Frank regulation, but um, I mean, then I thought of, I mean, the government trying to um, regulate uh, the financial sector, and on the other hand, all the uh, quantitative easings uh, that they've been doing. So how do you make that possibly compatible? I mean, all the regulations, but then all the quantitative easings and just trying uh, banks to lend people money just because. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's very, a very good point. There, there is an, a, a sense at which the... Uh, the Federal Reserve and the regulators are in some sense working at cross purposes because you know the regulators are making it much more expensive for banks to do, to do business, but then you've got all this pressure. Um, and one of the reasons I think we haven't seen the inflation that we should have seen with quantitative easing is because banks are sitting on a lot of the capital, um, partly because of the regulatory framework. So um, I just think that you know it's very dangerous. Uh, one of the big problems, again, with Basel is this idea that, you know, if you look at how they risk weight Basel, all of the risk weightings is in sovereign debt. So you can hold, you know, Greek government bonds, and for some reason Basel, and even, even the current Basel III regime, which is supposed to be an improvement, gives you a much higher rating than if you were holding a triple uh, A-rated corporate bond like ExxonMobil. So, so is there anybody in the room that actually thinks Greece is a better bet than ExxonMobil? I mean, I, <laughs> I'd go the other side of that because I really don't, you know, I don't think that it makes logical sense. So there has been this tendency to push a lot of the a lot of the capital towards the towards the sovereign sector, towards to, to you know towards governments. Um, that's in the U.S. and globally. So. Okay, um, with that, I think that we are going to be having lunch upstairs, and I'm happy to take any questions afterwards if anybody has any specific questions they want to ask me. Thank you very much.